Welcome to another Grazia Life Advice. I'm Rhiannon Evans and it's brilliant to have you with us as ever. We're ready again to hear six pieces of life advice from another brilliant woman. This time, a poet with more than 600,000 Instagram followers. Hi, I'm Nikita Gill. I'm a poet and writer. British Indian Nikita Gill counts Jamila Jamil and author Matt Haig among her many celebrity fans. I've always wanted poetry to be very mainstream. I want little kids to grow up going, I want to be a poet. And like yeah. all of their friends to go, yeah, that <laughs> sounds amazing. Her latest collection, Where Hope Comes From, was written through the pandemic, weaving words that explore our collective trauma. We talk quite a bit in this podcast about resilience, how writers in particular have to get used to being rejected. Nikita shares how her upbringing in New Delhi prepared her well for all that later life would throw at her. My mum never hid the fact that the world was unfair from me. She told me since I was a, a child, you know, the world is very unfair. Things are going to be really rough. But what matters is how strong you are and how you are able to get over those things. But she basically said, like, you know, the world is unfair, but that's why you have to work hard to make it fairer. And we'll hear about the sacrifice and big gamble Nikita made coming to the UK to try and be a writer. I gave up everything to be able to become a writer. Mm. And when I say that, I, when I first came to this country, I was sleeping on an office floor and I used to clean out student toilets. I hope you enjoy my chat with Nikita. It's a really thoughtful conversation and often moving. Hi, Nikita. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Brilliant, brilliant. As uh, has become the theme of the podcast these days, we're talking to each other from each other's homes. Where are you? You're in a study, it looks like there? Yes, that's right. I'm in my study. I've, I feel very privileged to actually have a study. It's, it's only been two months since I've had one, so it's very unusual. <laughs> Nice. Very, yeah. No kitchen tables for you. That's great. Um, <laughs> Nikita, we're talking to you today for lots of reasons. You've got some lovely advice coming up, but your book, um, your latest book, I should say, Where Hope Comes From, is out now. It's a really gorgeous collection of um, poetry, thoughts, and illustrations that all emerged over, well, you started writing it, you know, at the start of lockdown. Can you explain for you what the book is and what it's about? So, um, I, I think when lockdown started, just before lockdown started, um, I was following the news on this pandemic as it was starting to ravage the world. And then it affected our neighbors, it affected Italy. And that really, it was scary, but it was also heart-wrenching because um, the Italians, I know from you know having lots of Italian friends, they're very close to their elders. Mm. And to see the the wreckage this virus brought on them, it gripped me in a way. And and I started, this book started percolating about then. And when we went into lockdown was when I started writing it. And the first poem was uh, Love in the Time of Coronavirus, because I started writing poems to my friends who are all over the world. That poem was written to my friend Trista, who you know, I was talking over text to and we were going to meet at some point either this year or last year or this year. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that plan obviously got shelved uh, with good reason. Mm. Um, but it still, it hurt, right? It was a plan you made with someone you loved and it was shelved indefinitely. And we yeah. don't know if we, we, at the time we had no idea if we were ever going to go back. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we were saying it's such a weird place to put your mind back to now, even though a lot of us still have fears and anxieties. 
you know, a very different time. Your your poems in this book, they're brand new poems, but some people will know them. You sometimes put your poems on Instagram, don't you? So people might know Love in the Time of Coronavirus and, and a few of the poems in the collection. That's right. Yeah, I, I do share my work. Um, I tend to be quite topical with my work. If something affects me, I will write a poem. If it goes into a book, uh, obviously it goes through the editing process, but I like the fact that Instagram is very much about the unfiltered, you know, thought and process of like writing the poem and, you know, maybe revising it a couple of times and then just putting it out there. Um, and people's reactions are are really the thing which make that experience so special. A lot of people don't seem to to understand that, you know, prior to social media, prior to Instagram, when you would write, you you would, you know, have an editor and then it would go through the process of a book and you know, when, when finally the reader did reach out to you, it would be in a letter, right? Yeah. Or an email, but they would have put a lot of thought into it. But with a comment, it's that instant reaction mm. to something. And that is in, always, for me, I've always felt is a really powerful reaction from people. So I find it very interesting. Yeah. And you're absolutely huge on Instagram now. Have lots of celebrity fans, you know, your poems get shared far and wide. How do you find that kind of Insta fame. I mean, poets are normally kind of more reserved people, generalizing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a funny one. So, you know, um, you you set up boundaries to protect yourself. And I never set out to become popular or famous or anything like that. I got lucky. In fact, I would say for a lot of work, you get lucky. Yeah. You know, it's especially in the art world, you do. But it's a strange one because I, I am quite a reserved person when it comes. I've only ever used my social media for sharing my poetry. Mm -hmm. But the, the act of being a poet in itself is a massive vulnerability. You don't have a choice but to tell the truth mm -hmm. and sometimes very uncomfortable truths. I think like my boundaries have been that people don't really know a lot about me as a, you know, like where I live or, you know, whether I have a partner or not, you know, what my home situation is, what my life is. It's a really funny one, navigating that really reserved aspect of yourself and kind of balancing it out against this very public act of being a poet and sharing your work on such a large scale. So it's very interesting. And yeah, there are days where I, I, I do take lots of breaks from social, especially recently, mm -hmm. um, because I find that it it helps my brain settle, especially right now with everything which has been going on. I need the reflection time to be able to sit with myself. Yeah. And can I just talk about, you know, not trying to make poetry a trend, you know, <laughs> being around for thousands and thousands of years. Poetry, though, does seem to be very cool at the moment. You have Amanda Gorman on the cover of Vogue, for instance. I mean, are you noticing Gorgeous. that kind of shift? You mentioned Amanda Gorman, and I absolutely adore her. Um, I've I've been watching her perform her work for years, so mm. it's really nice to see the world finally appreciate her for the star that she is. It's a funny one because I always find it really funny when people say, "Oh, you know, poetry is back," or "Poetry is like having this yeah. kind of renaissance." Because poetry has always been this very um, adaptable thing. It has adapted through the generations um, in so many ways. It's one of our most ancient crafts. Like it's existed for thousands and thousands of years. And the only way it's been able to do that is because it's highly adaptable to every era, every generation. Like I always say this, you walk into a room, right? You ask someone what poetry is and everyone will give you a different answer. Mm. But it's incredible to see it 
become so mainstream. I've always wanted poetry to be very mainstream. I want little kids to grow up going, I want to be a poet. And like yeah. all of their friends to go, yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> oh my God, like and treat them like rock stars. You know, yes. I, I would love for that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, now you can be on podcast, be Insta famous and be on the cover of Vogue. So why not? <laughs> yeah, sounds great. We're here to hear your six best pieces of advice. So could you tell us what the first one is? Absolutely. Um, so my first piece of advice is letting go is not an act of giving up, but mm. growth. And this is a quite a specific piece of advice when it comes to myself, because I have a habit and I know this is something that I've spoken to a lot of people with, and they say they have a similar habit. Somewhere along the way, a lot of us, myself included, have thought that if you let go of something, you are giving up on a person, a relationship, something you've invested time and effort and hard work into, and giving up as an act of weakness. So therefore, we associate the concept of letting go with weakness. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I've really had to relearn, that letting go is an act of not only growth, but is an act of great maturity and an act of great strength. Because often you're letting go of something that you really love, or you, you don't know what you'll do without because it's stabilizing you, you know. But you have to acknowledge that it's not healthy. It's not good for you. And then you have to let it go. That's incredibly hard. <laughs> mm. And I think our hustle culture today says just keep going, keep going, push, 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 doesn't it? And sometimes that is not what you need to do. Is there something specific that sounds like it's been specific to you? Is there something you've had to let go of or what things have helped you in the past? I would say um, lots and lots of toxic relationships. I am a serial monogamer. It's a huge problem because I think it's something which I do. I, I invest all of myself into another person because I see that person as, you know, a, a part of this relationship. But it's something that become makes you quite codependent in mm -hmm. many ways. And letting go of each and every one of those relationships, I realized that I was better off. And that other person was also better off for not being with me because it's never just one person, you know. Whether you're the enabler or whether you're the one being enabled, the problem is both of you. It's something which has really taught me so much, this act of letting go before rather than waiting until things get so bad, mm. you have no choice but to walk away. Recognizing toxic patterns, recognizing, you know, boundary issues, recognizing all of those things earlier on, mm. it's really helped me. It's helped me grow so much, mm. you know. Yeah. And a much nicer way to look at kind of ending relationships as well, I think, than, you know, absolutely the kind of heartbreak that goes with it too. Your second piece of advice is to lead with kindness. And you say that's because none of us have ever met a non-traumatized adult. And I loved when you said that because I was like, yeah, you're so right. Yeah, <laughs> we're, all, we're all suffering, aren't we really? Tell me about that and why that's important to you. So... Um... I forget where I read this. I think it was somewhere on either on Twitter or it was in a book. And it basically that the thing said that, you know, we've never met a non-traumatized adult. Mm. And there were people in the in the comments or wherever I read this, there were people who are arguing this point and saying, well, no, because then there's trauma survivors and then there's people who are not traumatized. And I'm like, but if you think about it, by the time you're an adult, you've been through heartbreak. A lot of us have been through the experience of, you know, physical trauma, but also a lot of us have been through the experience of emotional trauma of some sort or the other. Uh, a lot of my friends had lost someone they loved 
by the time they were grown up, you know. Some of them lost them when they were very young children. But by the time you get to being an adult, you've accumulated a lot of trauma. And it's something I think when people try to gatekeep trauma, that becomes the problem. Like it's only if you've suffered this much, then you're allowed to call it trauma. Yeah. But like the smaller traumas or the smaller suffering, you can't call them suffering. You can't call That's just growing up. That's just this. That's just... We found a way to rationalize people's pain in so many ways that we don't even want to allow them to call their own pain a trauma. Mm. I've always felt like when someone comes to you and they say, look, I'm suffering, and maybe it's something like a heartbreak, and it's something you've been through before, so you don't see it as trauma, you still have to hold space for that. Mm. You still have to tell them they're valid. Like, it's just, it's, it would make us all kinder if we acknowledged everyone's validity in when they feel pain. Mm. And it doesn't matter if we don't look at that as a painful experience, that Mm. person's in pain, Mm. you know? So it changed the way that I thought about everyone around me. So. (laughs) No, I think, and it's two part, isn't it? You know, that kind of validating the trauma, but also yourself leading with kindness. I think nowadays we all say, oh, be kind. You don't know what someone's going through. And the idea is that there's a current thing you have to be going through for people to be aware. But are you saying that, you know, people could have all kinds going on, you know, from years ago that might be triggering. And so it's Mm. it's always best to be kind. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so, it's, and it's so important. Like it's, um, we live in a world which kind of tends to reward cruelty in many ways. Um, The harder you are, the stronger you are, whereas vulnerability is a sign of great strength. And to be able to treat someone with kindness when they are still trying to resolve their own trauma, even if they're acting in a way which is which you wouldn't look at and go, that person is traumatized, you have to kind of, you have to lead with kindness to be able to understand where that's coming from. Mm. No, I think that's, that's, you know, makes sense, doesn't it? And your third piece of advice, I think, you know, it, it might have been difficult for people over the last year is just to read and read and read. Mm. How did you find reading? There's a there's a poem in the collection about not being able to find inspiration, which is, of course, mm. ironic because it's in a whole book that you've written. But, you know, how did you find reading over the last year? I fell in love with reading all over again over the last year. And I think that's a strange thing to say because I'm a writer, so I read a lot. Right. And I've always read a lot, but I realized that a lot of the reading I was doing was for research Mm -hmm. for the next thing I was going to write, or I was reading deeply because I've learned to read deeply because I'm a writer. But I I realized that one of the things that I had stopped doing completely was reading the things that gave me a lot of pleasure. Mm -hmm. And maybe it was the things that a lot of people would look at and go, well, that's not very highbrow. You're supposed to be a writer. Um, But (laughs) it was, uh, I'm I'm a huge fan of thrillers. I think it had been three years since I had picked up my last thriller until last year. And like, I fell in love with thrillers all over again. Like, Ruth Ware, who is amazing. I've read everything that she's written. I only discovered her last year. Okay. And Tana French and like, you know, Kia Abdullah. And I just fell in love with all of their work. I, I didn't realize how much I loved thrillers and just reading them for fun without having to like go, oh, I really like how this writer has done this. You know, I should like keep in, you know, think about how they have used that technique. I didn't Mm. think like that. I just appreciated the writing for what it was. And um, the other, the genre, which I began to read a lot more of was romance. And, you know, like, I think like people don't understand when they look at something like romance, 
how it can be extremely beautifully written, very literary. There's so much beauty in the way a lot of romance write, writers write. And I feel like it's not appreciated, but I think that has something to do with misogyny, where people don't think it's highbrow literature, but it is. It absolutely is. I think all literature is valid. Um, and there's no such thing as highbrow and lowbrow li- literature. Yeah, brilliant. And I like that we've got some recommendations in there too, because it's always hard, I find, to get a good thriller. You know, there's always there's always a mix. Um, and the second part of that advice is that you think that many of the answers you seek are in the books you haven't read yet. Is that is that always the case for you? Is that where you tend to turn to for inspiration? Absolutely. Um, and it's funny because I was just talking about reading for pleasure. A lot of the answers that I'm seeking to the questions that I have are in the books that I read for pleasure. Mm-hmm. There's so many very clever romances out there which teach you about interpersonal relationships. And you're reading it for pleasure and you suddenly realize that... Uh, hang on, this is a complete reflection of how I've handled the situation so badly and how it must have felt to the other person. Wow, I should sit with that for a while, which is amazing that that a book can do that for you, you know, and I think for me, it's always been the answers have always been in the things which I read. And I think it's because when I when I struggle with something, I go to a book. What kind of reader are you? How many? I always like to know how many books people can read. I know you shouldn't compete with others, but uh, I always find it interesting. Do you do you go through them really quickly? So it depends. It, it depends. Um, I read a lot of books on the go, um, and I tend to read quite a lot of them together. You know, so I'll, I'll read a few books. I always read like a book of craft alongside a book for pleasure, alongside a light read, alongside poetry. So I'll have like four books on the go. Like for instance, when I went through this thriller phase recently. I read about seven books in a week. Yeah. Right? Because they're so, like, you can't look away from them, right? And because I don't have children yet, I have, like, you know, I don't have a little person, like, who I need to make sure is fed and looked after. And I don't know how moms do it, man. You guys are amazing. I have so much love and respect. Like, the older I get, the more love I have for my mom because I have no idea how she did it. (laughs) She had two of us. I was like, how? (laughs) Read less books, probably. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We'll be back with more from Nikita after this. We're still here with Nikita, and I'd love you to introduce your fourth piece of advice, please. So this piece of advice was something I learned over the last year, and it is that the universe never says no when you ask for something. It says, yes, or this will come to you later, or I have something better for you. Okay. And the way, uh, the reason I think that that's really important is because I, I would spend a lot of time when I would be rejected or like I would have a negative like result to what I was hoping for, right? I would spend a lot of time going, oh, why? You know, I feel so bad. Like I wish that had happened for me. So the thing is when you realize that there is something better for you, And that is why you have experienced a no at the time or you've experienced something negatively. It immediately changes your perspective on that negative experience. It's like, it's not meant for me, but the next thing will be better. And it's funny because people always say hindsight is 20-20, right? Mm. So when you look back at something and you go, well, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here doing this thing. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's about like thinking about the positivity in the moment when you need it most, I guess, because rejection is really hard. And is it something that you've experienced a lot of in your life or, you know, you, you seem to be fabulously successful and, and doing really well? So <laughs> um, I I gave up everything to be able to become a writer. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, I 
when I first came to this country, I was sleeping on an office floor and I used to clean out student toilets, you know, and I worked my way up and I got lucky, as I said, because it doesn't always work out for people. But yes, I got rejected a lot. I would say the first six years of my writing career, um, I was rejected a lot. And that was when I was actually submitting work. Then, of course, there's the voice in your head that tells you you're bad at everything every single day. That mean little voice who goes, mm, what do you think of yourself? Mm -hmm. um, so there's that rejection, which constantly happens within your own brain as well. But yeah, I I think I experienced hundreds and hundreds of rejections, which in the writing world is common, right? Rejection is the rule. You know, it's not the exception. Yeah. The exception is actually getting an acceptance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you talk about the universe a lot in this book, Where Hope Comes From. Why don't you explain why you, you decided to use that trope probably much better than me? So when I was really young, my mother and my grandfather introduced me to the world work of Carl Sagan. His work is just absolutely stunning because it makes astronomy so accessible to everyone, you know, even to, to me who reads, writes and speaks in my second language. And I was a child then. I read that book and I was just like, oh my God, you know, suddenly my whole, it, it's, it's a funny one, but your universe expands, mm -hmm. you know, because especially when you're a child, your universe is like your parents and the house you live in and your extended family and then their houses and that's it, you know, in school. Yeah. And then suddenly I was like, oh my God, there's this whole beyond the sky, there's this huge thing that is, you know, creating stars and creating us and we all come from it. And it just, it, blew my mind because I was like 10. <laughs> so it blew my mind and it just changed the way that I looked at the world forever, hmm. you know. And it when this started happening, that little 10-year-old Nikita kind of came back to me and went, but wow. remember, everything is so big. And um, I think little Nikita had a lot of like, uh, you know, just... I had a lot of fears, you know, when I was a little kid. Yeah, I was going to say it can be quite scary thought, right? But there is comfort in it, as you've found. A lot of comfort. And I think the, the thing is that if when you realize that the universe is so big and the world is actually so small compared to, you know, what else is out there, you start realizing how small your problems are, mm -hmm. really. And we've kind of already touched on your fifth piece of advice, which is that success truly depends on your resilience towards rejections. But can I ask you, were you always resilient? Was it something you had to learn? Yeah, I think resilience is a learned thing. But I think as as women, again, generalized statement, but I think as women, we, we are naturally quite resilient in many, many ways, mm -hmm. um, especially towards rejection, because women get told no an awful lot mm. from the minute we are very young. You know, no, you can't wear that. No, you can't go there. No, you should... And whether it's a question of our safety, you know, because our safety in itself is, is something that makes us change our behaviors every single day. For me, it was growing up in New Delhi. You know, my mom would say no to things that she wouldn't say no necessarily for for my brother. Yeah. It's that realization that you will get those kind of rejections that you know the men around you will not get. That built my resilience quite quickly. I learned my mom never hid the fact that the world was unfair for me. She told me since I was a a child, you know, the world is very unfair. Things are going to be really rough. But what matters is how strong you are and how you are able to get over those things mm -hmm. and cope with those things. So I think that really 
it really helps when the person who brings you up doesn't, you know, lie to you about like the world and the state of it. But she basically said like, you know, the world is unfair, but that's why you have to work hard to make it fairer. Yeah. And you've linked the rejection to success. So is it about the, you know, the coexistence of those two and how they help each other? Absolutely. Um, I think when you do, when you do any kind of creative career, um, and you know this, <laughs> you, you just have to, you have to be really resilient because mm. you will encounter so much, um, for lack of a better word, crap. You will encounter crap from, you know, people who may not be very nice. You will encounter crap from like, you know, the, the, the other side of it, which is, you know, when you're creating something and like these institutions around that thing aren't fair mm. for whatever reason, um, you will, you know, especially when you've, you've been innovative, you will find a lot of pushback, you know, so you have to be resilient. You have to believe in your art and you have to believe in yourself because no one else is going to do it. You have to do it. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that earlier, that kind of honesty that you have to have in poetry. I mean, do you always feel comfortable putting that much of yourself out there? That is, you're opening yourself up, right, to lots of rejection and anger. I've got better at it, <laughs> if that helps. Yeah. Um, I've got better at it because I've begun to realize that a lot of the anger that you see from other people when it comes to, especially because I would say like the work I put out there it's centric to my, to the way that I think. I don't mm -hmm. claim to know everyone's, what's best for everyone. I, I don't claim to be like someone who only writes for relatability, you know, yeah. that everyone should be able to relate to this. So I'm quite careful when I say like, you know, this collection is quite personal as well. But when I say that I, I went for this walk, like my government mandated walk, yeah. it's my walk, but a lot of people went on those walks and a lot of people saw similar things. And when you make it about like your worldview and someone comes in and goes, no, your worldview is wrong. And it's about something like mental health or love mm -hmm. or, you know, something like that. You're just like, uh, is my worldview wrong or do you just have a different one? Right. Yeah. Right. And so the anger then becomes a thing about how dare you have said something which doesn't work with my worldview, essentially. Mm -hmm. So it's never about you. It, it stops being about you. It's like, okay, maybe you have to go and think about the fact that there are different perspectives in this world that you may not agree with, mm. but they exist. Mm. That's great advice. Your final piece of advice, can you tell me, it's about spirituality. Yeah. Um, so your spiritual growth is just as important, if not more, as any material success you will ever achieve. Okay. I think like if there's anything which I've learned over this last couple of years, I would say it is that as much material success as you can have, right? Like oh, the amount, especially with social media, it's like, oh, the amount of followers you have, or oh, the amount of book sales you have, or oh, you, you learn to measure success on this metric of mm -hmm. materiality. Like, have you bought your first house yet? Babies, marriage, all of those things. And you start to realize that if, if everything that you consider success is a tangible thing, what have you achieved spiritually? Like, are you a good person? Right. Are you kind to others? What have you done for someone else today, which has been good for their soul as well as yours? How have you grown? Have you learned anything from someone else today? Mm -hmm. Have they taught you anything? Has your communication with someone else been good or bad? Have you been able to reflect on that negative behavior 
that you displayed and you know you displayed it and you were trying to look away from it? Have you reflected on that and realized where you were wrong? What are you going to do to rectify it? Mm. Those things are so important. And like, if you weigh out success in some ways, you start to realize that success is also about looking at that toxicity and those behaviors that you have brought that have probably come from unresolved trauma mm -hmm. and whether you've been able to go back look through the ugliness and resolve it right and the only way you can do that is through reflecting on that ugliness and not filling your life up with the events and things that that distract you from being able to do that reflection so when you're talking about spirituality you're talking more about kind of internal work and emotional work rather than any kind of organized religion is that the case Absolutely. Um, I am religious, but like, I think religion is a really private thing. Mm -hmm. It's between you and your God, right? So I don't tend to bring it anywhere with me. Um, I keep it at home and mm -hmm. I keep it with with myself. That's my conversation with God. Yeah, That's how, for me, that's how religion has always been. Yeah. But for me, spirituality is something that all of us have. All of us have a spirit. All of our spirits have gone through things. Mm -hmm. All of us need healing. All of us need to look into ourselves and see where can we grow and where can we evolve and where have we evolved and have we celebrated that? Mm. It's so important. You know, we have to celebrate the little things like, oh my God, you know, that horrible toxic behavior that I had a really big argument with Dave the other day and yeah. I wasn't very, you know, I wasn't very nice over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I need to look at that and like fix it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And of course it's great, isn't it? Because you can always work on yourself and you can always find wins there. Whereas sometimes external factors mean that you can't always, yeah. you know, money wise and things like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. We love always to finish on a bad piece of advice. Either you've been told or you've heard has been imposed on you. It sounds negative, but it always brings out some positive. So tell me what yours is. Oh, I will never forget because I was <laughs> told this when I was quite young. I think I must have been about 23 and it was like the father. So in India, we have a, a system of like arranged marriage, but it's it's actually not the way that people perceive it to be. It's it's quite evolved in many ways because you, you go and you meet the family of this young man and then you spend time with the young man, you know, and, and all of that and see if, if you want to be with him or her, depending yeah. on, you know. And I will never forget, but there was this one family that I went to visit and, and there was this young man and we weren't sure whether we liked each other. And his father had to sit down with me. And his father basically said to me, you know, to feel complete as a woman, you must be married and have a child before you are 30. Wow. Otherwise, you will always be incomplete. And you only have a few good years left, Nikita. <sighs> And I remember sitting over there thinking, I mean, the way, you know, when you know someone doesn't intend harm when yeah. they say something, like they're thinking the best for you, mm. in quotation marks, of course. And you just, you just look at them and you go, I don't want to say to you what I'm thinking, because what I'm thinking is, how dare you? But at the same time, I have never heard someone tell me something more ridiculous in my life. Yeah. But you saw it, it was ridiculous straight away. You weren't entrenched in that kind of feeling yourself, which lots of women do get caught up in, right? You know, it, it did. It, I would be lying if I said that it didn't like hit me in a place which was vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Because it does, like you said, you know, and to every, we are socially um, taught 
things like this. And especially like um, in South Asian culture, mm-hmm. a womanhood is intrinsically linked with motherhood. The completion of you as a woman comes when after you've had a child and you have a marriage. And because that is pushed so hard, I would be lying if I said that it didn't hit me in the place where I was vulnerable. But the other side of me, the logical side of me that was so keen to build a career, to empower other women, to do all of it was just it. I just looked at it and I thought, wow, I know so many women who are over the age of 30 who don't have a marriage or children who are people I admire. Mm. So what nonsense, you know? Yeah. Was that your last meeting like that? And you, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that made the decision for me, right? Yeah. yeah. You were like, no, this isn't happening. Okay. <laughs> Brilliant. Nikita, I've loved talking to you today. Thank you so much for coming on to Grazia Life Advice. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed that. If this is your first time listening to Grazia Life Advice, well, where have you been is my first question. But also to let you know, there are literally dozens of brilliant women in our back catalogue. Just last week, we had the excellent comedian Catherine Ryan. Go further back and you'll find Mel Gedroich, Davina McCall and so many more. We say this every time, but you'll know by now it means a lot to us. Please rate and review Grazia Life Advice in your podcast player. And do share this episode with someone you think will love it. Thanks as ever for being with us and we'll see you next time.